Radical, episode 196. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents. I'm Shane Hazel. Today is February 28th, 2022. I appreciate you guys being here with me. Um, let's see. Today, I, uh, I owe you guys an extra episode from last week. Uh, last End of last week, I got really busy. Had a lot of change in schedule and plans and all that kind of stuff came in last minute. Um, and it was for the good. I got to go down and, uh, and have a, a good meetup with a bunch of really good libertarians in Alabama, um, down in Dothan, Alabama. I uh, got to pick up Jake Green uh, on the way down there to to make sure that he's got all the footage that he needs. And it looks like he started on, um, uh, you know, some post-production now. So anyway, it's a, it's, he's, he's moving along, getting content and, and, and all that fun stuff, but he's a, he's a super good guy and he's a, he's a great guy to have on a, a long road trip. So anyway, we, uh, we couldn't get over to Florida, uh, and you know, it was just, it's so far away and you know, it looks like you guys had a good time out there too, but, uh, I wanted to say thanks first and foremost to Danny for, for having me in, uh, to speak about the Helios initiative and you know, if, uh, God willing, if some things come to fruition here in the very near future, I will see you guys at a lot more of these uh, conventions. So anyway, today is uh, also my birthday and uh, got a little time this morning. I took the day off just to to do it. Uh, I don't usually take the day off and um, most of the time, you know, a lot of times I'm on the road traveling, at least before 2020, uh, on the road traveling on my birthday. And so you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very nice to be here. It's nice to wake up here in, in my bed, uh, with my amazing wife and, you know, turn 42 years old. Absolutely awesome. So I took the day off and started it just as easy as I wanted, you know, um, went out, um, cooked some breakfast, got some coffee, uh, and sat by the fire with my wife this morning. It was awesome. I mean, just birds chirping and it was cool enough. Uh, but nice enough with a fire, uh, you know, going, sitting out there and, and just, just kind of took it in. I was like, man, we're going to do breakfast and then I'm going for a retreat, a spiritual retreat to the woods today. And I spent most of the day out there to, uh, took about a five hour hike, uh, with lots and lots of rest in between. Um, and some of you guys understand how this goes and what this is. Um, if you don't, I definitely suggest it to people. I mean, this is. It's something that I do for clarity and sanity and to turn it all off and discover peace. And I guess um, part of you know what I did out there is I kind of recorded my thoughts um, well in a, in a stream of conscious. And you know today's world, we look around and I can't help but see you know why we're here and you know all the all the craziness of it, uh, but. This this walk in in terms of you know being out in nature, being still, uh, having my dog around to kind of walk the perimeters and all that kind of stuff out in the middle of the woods on the uh, on the ridge tops and you know in the in the thicks and everything, it's it's spiritual. I mean, it's really something you know to be. I don't know. I, I wish more people uh, knew how to do this kind of thing. At any rate, um, we got out there and I started recording thoughts and kind of wanted just to reflect on my 42 years on this earth. Um, you know, 42 years is uh, young to some and obviously extremely old to others. There's a lot of experience that I have anyway that's, I think, fairly extreme uh, in, in those 42 years. You know, a lot of, a lot of tough times, you know, uh, a lot of them brought on myself. 
but this life for me has been anything but a easy thing to do. I mean, um, you know, from the very start, I remember being a kid, um, you know, we moved to Georgia in 1982. I was two years old and, uh, we lived over in Norcross, which is, which is a really different area, uh, back then Norcross was, you know, mostly two lanes, anything, uh, out there. And it's just, you know, lots of woods, not a lot of housing or anything. And, uh, we lived in a, a duplex, you know, so, you know, we were, we were, I think, you know, probably struggling a little bit, um, you know, never hurt for anything, but, uh, you know, my mom and dad were working their butts off, you know, sometimes two jobs and, you know, you, you just saw it was, it was a hard time. It was, you know, one of the things where we did great. They were great parents, great family, all that fun stuff. Um, and I owe them the world for, you know, helping me to see, you know, the world is not an easy place. It owes you nothing. It's not fair. All that kind of stuff. Um, and to see him work hard and have success, you know, to, to take pride in putting, uh, food on the table and clothes on our back and, you know, the, the ability to, you know, give us sports and everything else, like really, really cool, um, to, to be in that atmosphere as a child, you know, it's, it's not perfect by a long stretch, but it's a lot better than some places on earth. And when you realize that, then you realize sometimes learning that struggle when you're young is, uh, is best. So the, the time that I kind of reflect on and sometimes, you know, it's a blessing and a curse is, you know, how, how do you realize the world? Um, and as I was laying out there this morning underneath, you know, the, the bright blue sky, beautiful, beautiful day. I, uh, you know, I wanted to reflect on that. I wanted to reflect on peace in my lifetime because it definitely doesn't feel like there's been a lot of peace lately. Um, I think most people are, uh, are at least concerned, if not, uh, completely fed up. I think people want some stability back in their life and I get it. Trust me, I get it. And so to look at the world and kind of reflect in 42 years, like what I saw five years old, uh, you know, going into Gwyn Oaks Elementary over in Lawrenceville, Georgia. And I remember very clearly hearing about the Cold War. Uh, I remember running drills in case we were going to be nuked by, you know, Russia. And, you know, when typical school response, get under the, get under that $5 desk. <laughs> You'll be just fine when the nuclear bomb goes off. Uh, funny, it was the same position we got in for, uh, a lot of the, the tornado drills that we did. Yeah, <laughs> that's, um, that's the difference. I think, you know, straight away is as soon as you enter these government indoctrination centers, they, they start, you know, uh, telling you about what to, what to fear, what to be afraid of. And the fact that there are bad people in the world that, you know, want to do you harm and all that. Like, I get it. I don't know if it's their place and the fact that it's definitely not the government's place uh, to do this kind of stuff. But I mean, from the Cold War that ended, um, I guess, what, 1988-89, when things were transitioning in, in East and West Germany, um, you know, straight after that, we got pulled into a Kuwait-Iraq war. And 
have really been in the Middle East ever since. You know, that's that's one of the things I remember being like 10 years old in uh, Miss Anna Jo Wilhoyt's class, fifth grade. And boy, oh boy, like the the hawks that came out even in school at that point, you know, and not that, not that I didn't love a lot of my teachers. Like they were great, great people. And they were indoctrinated by the state, just like everybody else. But I thought, you know, I think back to those times and I think about, you know, the, the t-shirts that came to school with, you know, red, white, and blue and Eagles and USA and America and God bless our troops. And, you know, all these things that just, you know, changed overnight as we started to send young men and women into the Middle East with proposition of war. Uh, it, was, it was weird. And, you know, at first you, you don't really, I mean, golly, you don't understand until you, you understand what it is to be anti-war, but you don't understand it um, if you're in it. So I guess fast forward, um, you know, uh, late middle school, and in early high school, uh, the the whole re- revolution um, over in Eastern Europe going on, like it was, it was nuts. I mean, it was that time. I remember, you know, not having a whole lot of you know, oh, maybe a, what was a little rest in between, you know, one conflict and another conflict. But I remember, I remember hearing about, uh, you know, Somalia and Black Hawk Down. And all of these, you know, little things that were popping up all over the place, you know, and more and more, it just dawned on me that, you know, the U.S. military is involved in a lot of places around the world. <clears throat> and you start to look and find out that, you know, more so than you even know, not to mention all the alphabet soup, you know, sites and dark sites and all that shit all around the world. Like, you start to you start to realize that America is in a lot of places. And I don't know if it dawned on me, you know, until much later, but, you know, obviously after, um, you know, Eastern Europe, uh, Bosnia and all that fun stuff, uh, we get into 9-11 era and, you know, maybe there was a little break, um, there for a little while, you know, some things going on in, in Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, um, you know, places like, you know, Egypt were later, but, this whole thing, you know, just get very numb. You get, you get, you know, inundated with trying to keep up with where all of these, you know, all this fight happens. You know, where where all this war, where all this, you know, hurt and destruction and, um, you know, I guess, you know, putting in of puppets and just just the worst of humanity where it all happens. And so, anyway, I guess, you know, as a man, 21 years old, um, that's a that's really the last time I really remember peace as a nation. And I, I, I imagine there's a lot of other people out there that feel the same way. You know, that just haven't had a break in 20 plus years. You know, war is war is war, and sometimes it's, you know, far from the mind. But, uh, you know, a culture that has a, a very large warrior class and veterans and, um, 
you know, people who serve, it's, you know, you say serve, yeah. what I'm getting to is, I guess, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in America uh, that I think are tired. They're fed up. They're, they're absolutely to that point where they're just like, guys, you got to stop, man. You got to stop. And we see it clear as day. This, this, I don't know, 42 years of my life, with most of it, the U.S. being at war in some shape, in, in some way, shape, or form. You know, this is kind of the realization that I had when I was out there. And, you know, during meditation, prayer, and all that fun stuff, you know, th- those are the things I'm, I'm really concerned with. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, if you know where to look, because there, there is a balance. Um, we may not see it yet. And, you know, pe- that the pendulum, um, it seems to be doing something. And I can, you know, go out here like anybody else and look at crazy headlines. Um, you know, one of the great, you know, headline, I say, I say that like, as in this place is always moving the, I don't the the goalpost or doing whatever it needs to do. It's a uh, drudge report. And, you know, I've, I've kept up with these headlines for years just to see where a lot of people are being pushed to look. Um, and it seems like, uh, to me right now, they are trying to absolutely, uh, make Putin the ultimate bad guy. I'm not going to tell you he's a good guy. Um, and make Zelensky look like the good guy. And there's so much pressure that's being applied. Um, the uh, the Russian ruble uh, with sanctions has absolutely cratered. There's a there's an article here. Um, but you know when you first get into the Drudge Report, you look at everything that they've they've got on here, and it's just war, 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 war. I mean, just pushing war. You got a close up of um, you know Putin's face. And underneath it, in great big capital letters, it says "nuke crazy," which we'll get into here in a second too. I I think we'll we'll start with the the ruble because this is this is something that you know happens a lot in terms of warfare and economic warfare. So let, let's read this. this: is from the Blaze News. Russian ruble craters to less than one U.S. cent. Stock market freezes after Russia's removal from global banking system. New financial penalties levied on Russia for its continued aggression in Ukraine appeared to hit the country's economy hard on Monday as the Russian's currency cratered to a record value and its stock market froze. What are the details? The Russian ruble's value plummeted to less than one U.S. cent on Monday, time reported dropping more than 25% to 105.27 per U.S. dollar, down approximately 84 per dollar since late Friday. After initial decline, after initially declining to do so, the U.S., Japan, and several European nations on Saturday agreed to enact more severe sanctions on Russia as its forces continued to assault the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. In an attempt to overthrow the government, a group of nations went after central banks and the reserves that underpinned Russia's economy and removed several key Russian banks from SWIFT. The Society for World Interbank Financial Telecommunications, a vital international banking system, time noted that the ruble's calamitous decline 
would likely send inflammation soaring, a development that would hurt all Russians, and not just the elites who were targeted in the earlier sanctions. I'm going to pause because I, I want to take a moment. Whenever countries level sanctions against other countries, it is always, 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 always most hard on the people with the least amount of money. Always. Especially when it causes inflation. You know, most of the time it does cause inflation. Is it going to cause hyperinflation here? It might. Uh, and as the Russian banks and the Russian market fails, that's going to be, I think, one of the very the very last beginnings, you know, this downward spiral of fiat currency and banking and things like that in the world. And I, and I say that because of where hard money is going, uh, which we'll, we'll see later. But anyway, um, I, I did want to take a minute, you know, anytime we're talking about leveling sanctions against a country, remember that most of the time, the first people that are hit and the people who are hit the hardest are definitely the poorest in that country. It goes on. Critics had called for the forceful move to be enacted immediately upon Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but Western leaders initially balked. Even now, Time noted that the disconnection from SWIFT is partial, leaving room for the U.S. and Europe to escalate penalties. Yet, the effects are reportedly being felt already as Russian residents rush to ATMs to withdraw cash amid the ruble's freefall. What else? In addition to the currency plunge, the Russian stock market also took a major hit on Monday. According to the New York Times, officially, it officially closed the Moscow Stock Exchange for the day, citing developing situations. The economic reality has, of course, changed. The Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov reportedly told members of the press while announcing that Russian President Vladimir Putin had ordered an emergency meeting with top financing officials. Western restrictions effectively have placed a chokehold on the Kremlin's ability to access its war checks financially in their reserves and sent to the country careening towards an ex economic crisis. At the very last of the world, at the very least, the world intends to financially isolate Russia in a way not experienced since the Cold War. Quote, Putin embarked on a path aiming to destroy Ukraine. But what he is also doing is, in fact, he is destroying the future of his own country, end quote. European Union Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said on Saturday. Anything else? Yet even as Russia's economy faced significant distress and delegations from Russia and Ukraine met in Belarus for peace talks, the Russian offensive showed no signs of letting up. Ukrainian officials claimed Monday that an air raid on residential areas in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, left dozens of people dead, including several several civilians. Kharkiv has just been massively fired upon by Grad rockets, dozens of dead and hundreds wounded, the interior minister said on Facebook, according to the BBC. So Russia's in a really, I mean, this is a very precarious place. You know, the world right now has backed a very dangerous man into a, uh, a corner. And to worsen things, a lot of his own country um, over, over 
54 cities have seen protests in Russia. There's this one um, on YouTube that I found where the street uh, and this walkway that is just lined with people in masks and people in hats out walking and protesting, and they are chanting no to war in Moscow. No to war is what they're saying as they pass. That is some of the bravest people I've seen. I've seen some other, a lot of them are extremely young. I mean, like teenagers. They don't want this war. They don't want to invite harm upon their country, man. That's the thing is like a lot of these guys are plugged in. A lot of them have connections all over the world. They see that the world can be a better place. They just want to be part of that world, man. They don't want any of this kind of crap going on. And to stand up against your country, man, I'll tell you what, it is super brave. Super, super brave. And I'm, I wish, I wish the people that always told us, you got to stand up for what's right. You got to stand up for the little guy, all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know where those people are. I don't see them in America. You know, I see a lot of hungry war-hungry zealots that are ready to go and do terrible, terrible things in other parts of the world with other people's kids. Fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, you name it. Like I'm, That's what I see in America. These Russians that are protesting out there, it, it's, it's unbelievable to me. Now, let's get back into... Um, there's a there's a good war uh, or yeah good good war sorry there's a there's a good um, there's a good article on antiwar.com and there are some things happening like I said you know I'll go see what the world is trying to get pushed on it if I go over to Drudge then if I really want to see what's happening um, I go over to antiwar.com uh, hats off to Scott Horton and the team over there that runs it uh, David Camp uh, is one of the guys that does an amazing job over there and I end up getting a lot of his uh, uh, articles. So Putin orders nuclear forces on high alert cities in cities, Western sanctions. So are uh, cities, cities sites, Western sanctions for God's sakes. Anyway, um, he's, he's in a corner. He's a terrible guy. Um, and the entire world is really, really, um, putting it to them. I mean, honestly, like with all the sanctions and everything else, the the press and the communications, it's it doesn't look good for Vladimir Putin. Not, I mean, he he's got his own people turning on him. He's got the entire press is against him. All the countries, like things are getting kind of nuts. So um, it goes in and it says Russian President Vladimir Putin on Sunday ordered Russians' nuclear forces to be put on special alert in response to Western sanctions and what he said were aggressive statements made by NATO countries. Quote, top officials in NATO's leading countries have been making aggressive statements against our country. For this reason, I give orders to the defense minister and chief of general staff to introduce a special combat service regime in the Russian's army defense forces. Putin said, according to Russian's TASS news agency. According to RT, Russian Times, 
Putin activated a deterrent force, which include, includes both nuclear and convention, conventional strategic weapons that can be used offensively or defensively. The Russian military says the force is designed to deter aggression against Russia and its allies, as well as to defeat any aggressor, including in a war with the use of nuclear weapons. Putin's move comes after the U.S. and its European allies announced that they are expelling some Russian banks from the SWIFT international financial system. The U.S. and its allies have imposed a series of harsh sanctions on, on Russia since its assault on Ukraine has begun. The Western powers are also taking steps to send more weapons to Ukraine to help them fight Russia. On Saturday, the U.S. announced an additional $350 million in military aid for Ukraine. This package will include further lethal defensive assistance to help Ukraine address the armored, airborne, and other threats they are now facing, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in a statement on the new ad. Anyway, so the White, the I guess they go on to talk about the White House asking for another $6.4 billion for military and humanitarian aid to give to Ukraine and others in that region. Here's the thing is like, they still have the same budget from the last, you know, few years, right? Like it's all the same budget every year, pretty much. And they haven't spent it on things and they need another 6.4 billion. And what are they doing? This is, I mean, this is one of those points where I think a lot of people need to pay attention. Um, you know, the U S and the rest of these guys, they're not, um, you know, they're not cleaning this, but it, I don't know the fact that possibly, um, Russia is going to be stopped in Ukraine and it's going to hand them a defeat. It could be a very dicey situation, right? Could be, I hope it's not, I hope it kind of falls apart and I hope they move into, a much better, cleaner, um, less less forceful type of currency, um, which I think is making its turn here. And I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it every chance I get. Um, what has happened over there as banks and everything else, whether it's Russia or Ukraine, um, as banks have been locked out, as banks have locked people out or run dry because of runs on the banks because they didn't have the collateral uh, to cover these runs or running out of money. And obviously there's a situation. Well, Bitcoin back in the news, saving the day, kicking some ass again. Uh, they have uh, put out from the Bitcoin magazine eight hours ago that Ukraine government and nonprofits have raised over 11 million in Bitcoin since the start of the Russian conflict. That's incredible. And uh, I also read somewhere that there, uh, that Bitcoin has overtaken the Russian ruble and the market cap. So no matter what, you know, this is, this is kind of how Bitcoin's going to work. It's going to be an anaconda. You know, the more dumb things that these tyrants do, the more they're going to get caught and the more Bitcoin is going to come in and squeeze them and squeeze all the, the life and fiat right out of them. 
You know, as these guys launch wars, people make run on banks. And if the money isn't there, people get pissed. They do. And they need money. And so what happens? We see the banks for who they are. Bunch of lying, deceitful, um, awful people who have funded a lot of terrible things. Come up with a system for it. Pushed the system for it. Funded the system that does a lot of terrible things. And Bitcoin comes in and helps save the damn day. Like people being afforded passage and tickets and everything else to leave Ukraine. To get the hell out. Or, in another case, the military was gifted uh, a bunch of night vision goggles to help fight the Russians um, with Bitcoin. Like it's, it's utterly amazing to me to see all of this happening in real time in our lifetime. This, this, you know, Bitcoinization is taking giant first world economies and it's outperforming them. It's separating from them. The market cap from the rubles, the fact that now you're talking about Bitcoin being more valuable than rubles. That's incredible. Not ever in my lifetime, you know, 20 years ago, would somebody have told me that a digital currency that is open and it is decentralized outside of the, the hands of the banks could crush Russia's banks? Whose banks are they going to crush next? Right? Like they kicked ass in Canada. So now they've kicked ass in Russia and Canada, where you see people getting absolutely terrorized by the despots from the government. I'm looking right at you, executives, especially you cops, people that are putting your hands on peaceful people for protesting the last two years. Like, you guys are in a dangerous place, man. It doesn't have to be that way. But I don't know. I see all these as wins. I see this as an amazing point. Um, there's a there's a cool article. How, what, what kind of time am I running at already? A little over 30 minutes. So um, I thought this was interesting. Um, this is a uh, article out of Bitcoin and or uh, Bitcoin magazine. And it's by a guy named uh, Dan Ven, Ventrub. Uh, and I hope I'm saying that right. It's, it's spelled like a... Uh, German name, so I imagine it's uh, Veentrub. At, at any rate, um, it says how Bitcoin ends in justice and the importance of orange, uh, the importance of orange pilling activists. It is obvious that the world cares about injustice, but the incentive system of money must align with justice in order for solutions to occur. So I'm going to read some of this article. I don't know if I'll get all the way through it, but um, I thought this was important because of where we're headed with this stuff. Tens of millions of people in the United States consider themselves activists and social justice-minded individuals engaged in some form of work that is either directly or tangibly focused upon political social change. Indeed, according to Gallup, some 40% of Americans see themselves as environmentalists. And a recent case of the foundation study 
2017 reveals close to one in five millennials identify as activists in one manner or the other. Until we do a better job of addressing the Wall Street and government-informed narratives around Bitcoin, and until we invest far more of our personal resources and time into demonstrating how Bitcoin promises a better world for all, these activists, these would-be change agents for good, will continue to fight battles that simply cannot be won. And those who suffer injustice will continue to do so. Right? Um, this is This is for everybody. This is for anybody and everybody out there. You know, it doesn't matter what you're fighting for. Um, this is where all the rules get very even for everybody involved in terms of money. People are hardwired for justice. Any quick Google search that includes words like justice and equality reveals a human ecosystem in which concerns over exploitation and inequality permeate every nook of the human endeavor. Tweak the search just a bit, and you will discover a myriad of organizations and foundations, meetups, and groups, and Facebook communities centered upon righting all manner of societal wrongs. The data could not be clear. People care. People care about a broken criminal justice system and about the scourge of domestic abuse. People care about economic injustice and skyrocketing homelessness. People care about lack of access to affordable health care and about fair wage for labor. Parents want their children to grow up in a world in which they are, in which the air that they breathe and the water they drink and the food that they eat doesn't make them sick. And people care about living in a country in which 40 million Americans currently living in poverty might find a way out of such a situation. I don't agree. I, I don't disagree with a heck of a lot of that. I think where we differ is how we solve those. Some people want to use force and coercion, and some people want to use charity. The people who want to use charity are always right. One of the extraordinary things about human beings is that we are programmed, hardwired, toward equality and justice. Yes, the manifestation of equality as a 21st century politically manipulated construct has repelled many, but that doesn't change the fact that humans view fairness as essential to our interrelatedness. What is the primary compliment of any child who feels wronged by their parents, teachers, and friends? That's not fair. Rarely, if ever, do you hear a five-year-old after he has extracted an unserious fee from his pal for the use of his matchbox cars. Defend his exploitation by telling his little buddy that, well, life isn't fair. Yes, these words, justice and equality, have become loaded in recent years leveraged by ideologues looking to gain power and influence through immunization of the other side. And still, virtually, everyone believes in the, sancti in the sanctity of a just world. Bitcoin as the apex agent for social justice. Right? So, obviously, you guys, you know me, and you know um, social justice, the way that the social justice warriors wants to do, want to do it by taking your life, liberty, and property while telling you life isn't fair. Yeah. 
we all understand social justice that way. So I know some of you guys, especially um, the right libertarian and libertarian right, all that fun stuff. Like that's where you're like, oh man, what's coming next? Hang in there. I recently had a dinner with an old friend. She is an activist, a warrior for women's political and social justice issues. During our conversation, my friend described to me the outrage she felt over her employer's unwillingness to do the thing, the right thing, vis-a-vis the alleged instance of sexual misconduct in the workplace. We agreed upon further discussion that the employer's reluctancy surrounded the issue of risk. My friend pointed out that, from her standpoint, the employer had their heart in the right place, but the financial risk involved in doing the right thing was simply too great. Moreover, we agreed that under that umbrella of a monetary system in which social justice and equality appear extractionary, political opportunists can employ ideology as a tool to instill fear in those who might come to see moves toward equality as being unfair to them. And round and round we go. The bottom is the bottom line is this: social justice and equality will never exist in a fiat money world. The vast majority of people, institutions, nations will only make the right decisions about the social good as long as it doesn't extract money from their coffers. Moreover, and quite dishearteningly, those who feel they have the most to lose, those with the most money and power will go to extraordinary lengths to disempower those who seek justice and and equity in this world. Bitcoin can fix this, but we have to prioritize our own activism by showing tens of millions of political and social justice-minded souls just how this happens. Back to dinner with my friend. Toward the end of our evening together, I took some time to introduce my friend to the idea of Bitcoin as a catalyst for change. I had to do so carefully, as her stories around Bitcoin are incomplete and propaganda-informed and, therefore, very negative. So instead of going off on some evangelistic, philosophical rant, not a very good way to approach orange-pilling someone who holds a very strong political value, I simply shared a little bit about money and financial imperialism, and also about international remittance, jackmailers, and strike. The thing about most activists is that they do not recognize how injustice is not a single-issue phenomenon. My friend may focus the bulk of her attention upon women's empowerment, but she also knows that the corporate exploitation and history of U.S. imperialism is Central America is the real, is real, and is anti-human rights, and is part of the greater struggle for a just world. And so this story, strike story, made tangible for her one way in which Bitcoin offers the world a way out of hell. Tens of millions of American activists are searching for the answer. They are spending hours each week engaging in marches, protests, petitions, drives, lobbying efforts, letter-writing campaigns, bake sales, and countless hours spent trying to change a system in which an ever-increasing number of people struggle, in which life is increasingly unfair. 
This is not about ideology, and yet that's the lens through which we have become programmed to see it. Left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative. These are our artificial constructs perpetrated by those who benefit benefit from such polarization and conflict, and at the heart of it, all is a system of money that is extractionary and exploitive, a system that rewards othering and hatred and inequality, a system in which abundant resources are hoarded and confiscated out of fear and greed. Bitcoin can, in time, shift the monetary paradigm to one of mutual, mutual <laughs> boy, of mutualism and cooperation, of shared resources and shared values, not political values, not ideology, but the one thing everyone seems to want, fairness. Bitcoin does this by decoupling exploitation from gain. In a Bitcoin world, a world in which truth is verified by an inviolable network, a world in which cooperation and mutualism and global, a global barter become normative, a world in which everyone comes to the global network as equals. Extraction and exploitation no longer behave as the driving force of human action. In a most beautiful sense, we all become children again, imbued with a sense of wonder at a world suffused with joy and built upon a foundation of love. Those who seek to exploit gain, not from such motives. They live on the fringes, sociopaths stuck in a purgatory of their own making. A call to action. Today I will share this evangelical with one friend and one individual from my circle of people who sees the world as, someone un as somewhat unjust who is involved in a political or social activism of one kind or another as their expression of a desire for a better world. We need folks to understand Bitcoin as a righteous agent for change, for they possess a passion for justice, for equality, and for fairness. So uh, Dan has uh, asked for um, you guys to take this on and, and share it with people. Start sharing the understanding of Bitcoin and how it does take force and coercion out of our interactions. It's real, real simple when, um, you know, when you've got it down and you kind of understand, like, this is the reset. Um, this is the, the, this is the one that is decentralized. This is the way we need to go this is away from the, the war, away from the centralization, away from things like. UN and NATO and all these nonsensical alliances that get people in trouble, that put people at odds. I mean, think about that. What's going on in NATO right now is a bunch of alliances. And it's making others, you know, feel threatened. Like, what if we weren't doing this kind of stuff anymore? And we talk about going back to understanding the world as a child. You know, today as I turned 42 and I've kind of reflected, I think that's probably what Bitcoin does for me. I think that's why I'm very, very optimistic about the future. As this new 
way to exchange with each other becomes more and more and more mainstream. So does consent. So does charity and love on scales around the world that just cannot be stopped. In the face of adversity, in the face of tyrants and despots, people can make a difference, a direct difference right now, instantly. It's, it's amazing to me. What the potential for this does for the human species, the, the good we are seeing right now out of human beings, the rising up of just regular people around the world. Some in places that it is hard to rise up in, like Russia. I hope if you're a praying person or you're a good vibes person, whatever you do, now is the time to plug in. Now is the time to get going. Now is the time to start communicating. It's time to start getting back out there. It's time to start being evangelic for something. Give people some hope. Show them the way. Orange pill them. Teach them economics. Plant seeds. I guess I'll end with this. When I was uh, when I was at the convention, I got asked the question: How do we, how do we turn people <laughs> into libertarians? And I've shared a couple times, maybe even on the show a little bit, but the idea that you can turn somebody into a libertarian, I think, is folly. I think it was folly for me. I think it was folly for anybody else to think that they could turn people. What we can do is teach. What you can do as an individual is teach. You can plant seeds. And the best way that I've seen to do that in my own life is to tell people my story. Lead with my heart. You know, <laughs> good intentions, bad results a lot of times, right? A learning, a process. You know, this isn't going to be easy for people. This is going to take some time. And hopefully we've got some time left. Some time to be peaceful. Some time to teach. Some time to show a lot of people the way out. I mean, the more we do, the steadier things are going to get. The less war we're going to have potential for. The more life stabilizes again and I think that's what people are yearning right now I think people want to see something stable share people share with their anybody and anybody that can listen plant seeds and tell your story about liberty about I don't know bitcoin whatever it is teach and talk to each other Love on each other as much as possible. That's the way this spreads. That's the way we defuse this whole situation that is the the banks melting down in real time. Show people the exit. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you guys a couple more this week. I will get them to you. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Until next time, I love you. I need you. Peace. Uh.
Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.